There'll be no regular episode of the Life and Times of Video Games this week because I'm off on my honeymoon. But to tide you by until I'm back, I thought you might enjoy listening to my talk from PAX Australia 2019 a couple of months ago about the lesser known of the indie game publishing giants from before the time of Braid and Steam and all that other stuff we've had over the past 15 years. The talk was called The Rise and Fall of Ambrosia Software, 90s Mac Legends. And you can find accompanying slides at tinyurl.com slash talk. That's all one word, tinyurl.com slash talk, As well as my full script on the accompanying blog post at lifeandtimes.games. So please, enjoy. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Okay, that's everyone in, yeah? And sound is good? Yeah. Excellent. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Richard Moss, and uh, today I am going to be talking to you about a company that's pretty near and dear to my heart, and I think uh, quite a number of you as well. Uh, not only, I, like, I was someone who grew up playing their games, but I also wrote a book that has uh, gone into quite a bit of detail about them and a whole lot of other uh, Mac gaming companies and games and people who were involved in that scene. There's a small list of just some of the things that are covered in the book. Shovel yeah, Shovel Puck Cafe has a, a wonderful backstory to it. And uh, of course, these guys, Ambrosia Software. If you were a Mac gamer in the late 90s, chances are pretty high that you would have had at least one game in your collection that came from these guys. They were heroes among the Macintosh faithful. One of only a few companies that made its games exclusive to the Mac. And this is at a time when that made no business sense, as we'll talk about later. <laughs> Arguably the best among them as well in terms of the quality of their output. They were kind of commercial grade. Games like Maelstrom. It's a, an asteroid-style game. Escape Velocity. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Escape Velocity fans here. Anyone who worked on, on Nova here? Oh, sorry. I, yeah, I did work on Nova. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I'll mention that again later. Uh, that was made in Tasmania. Ferazel's Wand, Ben Spees. Apiron. Yes. Bubble Trouble. Uh, they, these games were hallmarks of quality, even if most of them were essentially just jazzed up versions of classic 80s games, mainly from the arcade. And they also had top draw offbeat options, like this is Avara. It's a, a kind of abstract looking arena style first person shooter. It's actually quite a bit of fun. And um, if I can get the mouse there, this level here is uh, like a, on a, a computer chip was the, the idea there. And then there's also yes! Harry the Handsome Executive, where you guide a, a middle, middle management executive through an office electronics apocalypse while scooting around on a swivel chair. <laughs> you, you never leave the chair. <laughs> For, where's my mouse? For about 15 years or so, the Ambrosia software name was inseparable from quality games or quality Macintosh games, if you want to be specific. But then it faded rapidly into the background for reasons I'll get to later, as I said. And then finally, the company closed its doors at the end of last year. So in recognition of Ambrosia's achievements, which have kind of slipped a bit under the radar, I think, outside of that old school Mac faithful, I wanted to give you a tour through the company's rise and fall. Uh, there's not enough time to cover everything. I, I am not able to show off every game extensively or tell you the full history of the company, but I'll try and get to all the key stuff and you'll hopefully come away with a good sense of uh, A, why Ambrosia matters to the history of games and uh, what made Ambrosia special to the Macintosh flock. So let's begin. Andrew Welch, his dad owned a marketing company and it was through that business that young Andrew uh, had the seed planted in him for what would become Ambrosia. 
when he was maybe 12 or 13 years old, he found the company's library of books and documents on typography. And he thought that was pretty cool. So typography is uh, the art of fonts. And he decided, I'm going to learn to design my own typefaces uh, on my Macintosh. He, has a Mac he had a Macintosh at home. Then starting from around age 14 or so, he began selling them on America Online, AOL. Uh, but most people who were doing this thing, they sold their fonts without any documentation. Uh, there was no way to know after the fact, after you downloaded this thing, who had made it, how you could pay for it, if it was uh, something that you could pay for, uh, who to contact for support if there was a problem and all, all this stuff. So Andrew taught himself how to code so that he could make a, a wrapper utility to, to go around that and package it in a sort of a document reader to give all that information. And he enjoyed this process of coding so much that he kept doing it. He started making utilities for friends and family, like his extended relatives. And then he went off to college to study photojournalism. And in his spare time, he created his first game. It's a Wheel of Fortune clone called Wacky Wheel. And he released it as shareware. As you'll see on the, on the slide on the right there, Wacky Wheel is not free. Uh, we hope you'll do the right thing by sending us $10. This was kind of par for the course with small Mac games at the time. There were lots of people putting out crappy little games as freeware or shareware. Freeware, uh, the most popular definition being literally it is free. Uh, but even the rare good ones weren't really making anything more than pizza and beer money. Or literally beer. <laughs> These guys made uh, about, th th they received uh, like $8,000 worth of beer and other alcohol as a result of making their game. It's also a really good game. So a quick definition of shareware. It's software you give away free, but you ask that if someone likes it, they'll pay a registration fee. They'll send in a check or something. Uh, and depending on the exact implementation, the person registering might get customer support or free updates. Uh, maybe it'll just take away a nag screen. Maybe it'll just fill your heart with warmth that I supported them. This is a pretty typical uh, shareware notice taken from an early DOS game from around, I think, 1985. Uh, over on the PC side, by the early 90s when Andrew was getting into things, shareware had already taken off. Apogee Software and Epic Mega Games were making a fortune with independent developers and uh, they were selling their games in a clever twist of, a sta of that standard shareware model that they called the Apogee model. Basically, this involved uh, that instead of giving the game away free and requesting people pay if they like it, which wasn't working so well for games, they made things episodic. So you get Episode one free, that's distributed over the internet, but then you've got to pay a fee to get the rest of them sent to you through mail order. And uh, I'm actually writing a book about shareware. So if you're curious to learn more about it, uh, uh, ask me later and I'll tell you about the book. It's going to be a while before it's done though. And then you had id Software. They are just starting to make their name at this point as well. They had Wolfenstein 3D in 92. Doom in 93, both published as shareware through uh, Apogee on, on DOS systems. So the time was ripe for shareware to get big on the Mac side as well. The Mac was at the peak of its popularity, uh, pre-iMac and like resurgence in the early 2000s at least. College kids across the United States had Macs set up in their dorm rooms while creative professionals all around the world had decided that the Mac was their go-to platform for doing their work. And they were keen for more time-wasting things that they could uh, use to get through the lulls in, in their productivity or just to waste time generally. But there weren't many games coming out and the porting industry, which took PC games and put them on the Mac, was still in its infancy. After 
that they'd kind of struggled with the peculiarities of adapting games for the Mac's uh, mouse and menu-driven interface. So the, the game on the right there, that, that's Gato. That was, um, that was a DOS game that had many, many different modes that you had to switch between. On the Mac, they managed to squeeze them all onto one screen. So it's pretty cool. And then all the, instead of having a keyboard layout that had almost every key had, a, had its own command, you just used the menus. You just took your mouse up to the top and you, you didn't have to remember anything. It was all right there. Truly cross-platform commercial computer games that had concurrent or near-concurrent Mac and PC releases, they were still rare. There were special ones like this one, which was made on a Mac first. And Mac first development was in a bit of a lull in this early 2000s for a variety of reasons that I don't have time to tell you here. Um, and it had yet to recover from this lull. So there was a lot of room for a great new Mac native game to stand out. And really crucially for our story here, someone on the internet was wrong. I'm going to let you hear this straight from Andrew Welch. It works. Should be playing. Audio working. It was working when we tested it. <laughs> I think it was called a love and Mac. These guys are putting CI the or something like that. It was a, one of the color no Macs track. that came out. With all and someone had said something about the fact that while well, it was too slow to do from decent animation on, you can find uh, out what you've been And by that on. point in time, I had actually taught go. myself uh, assembly <laughs> language as well, right? So I set out to prove this guy wrong because it's always fun to try and prove someone on the internet that they're wrong, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> right? So, yeah, so that's how um, I started writing. Uh, and I, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do yet, but I started writing kind of some animation stuff. And I grew up going to a lot of the arcades where we played games like, you know, Asteroids and Centipede and, and that type of thing where... Um, you know, after school, I would get dropped off there and, and play. So I decided to make uh, kind of an Asteroids-based game. So uh, here's the game. Um, if that is going to work. Yeah. He asked a couple of friends to help him out with the, the graphics and um, got a few of his college buddies with him to to uh, play around with the microphone. They made a bunch of silly noises. They recorded stuff off the TV and the radio. It's just full of pop culture stuff. They pulled really liberally, uh, drawing tiny clips and references without permission, of course, uh, from all over the place. Uh, kind of like a, they made this wall of sound that early hip hop and remix culture had had. Like this is right coming out of that, which was, that was an 80s and early 90s thing as well. Um, like Public Enemy were really famous for it. They, they had so many samples in their albums that uh, it wouldn't be possible to make those albums these days because it would cost them too much money paying for the rights. He called his game Maelstrom and put it online as shareware, published under uh, the, na the name Ambrosia Software. And he pulled this from Greek mythology, which he'd been reading at the time. You could play it and share it freely, but it'd nag you uh, in a little corner uh, to send in a check to register every time you booted the game. It was pretty non-intrusive, but still a lot of people, they did. We'd go to the mailbox and there'd be letters from all over the world, and I, I just had a blast. I thought it was really, really cool that I could do something just sitting in my room in upstate New York, which was where I was at the time, and I got these contacts from all over the world. And I thought that was really, really cool. And it was at a time where uh, people were just starting to get connected online. Like now, it's no big deal. You know, you can go you know, on Twitter, Facebook, anywhere, and you can contact people from anywhere, any walk of life, uh, pretty much anywhere that they have an internet connection. But back then, um, I thought it was kind of special and kind of cool. I mean, I, I really enjoyed that part of it more than anything else.
And one of the coolest things about Maelstrom was you could modify it. So these are two custom graphics packs that you see here. Uh, I think one's Star Trek and the other is uh, maybe a, an 80s-style Asteroids-like skin. You could swap out its graphics and sounds for something else. Here's a folder full of them. Um, you can make it look like Star Trek or old-school Asteroids or something totally different. There's Beavis and Butthead in there, Blazing Saddle Sounds, <laughs> um, Christmas, Doctor Who, lots of cool stuff. And you just layer on even more pop culture references than were already in the game. And lots of people did this for years after its release. It was still happening like a decade ago and right up until a few months ago, you could still download most of these uh, these user-made skins and mods and sound packs directly from Ambrosia's website, which sadly isn't online. Maelstrom was such a success that Andrew found himself at a crossroads. <laughs> He could keep going down that photojournalism path that he was studying at college, or he could double down on this shareware business and do Ambrosia full-time. And on the advice of one of Maelstrom's customers, this guy, he's a really famous photographer uh, for National Geographic, he chose the latter. Uh, basically, he was told, uh, do you want to carry someone's bag? Because that's what you're going to be doing if you keep going photojournalism, you'll spend a decade just carrying bags. So he and his roommate incorporated the company in 1993, and they soon managed to convince some merchant services companies uh, to give them an account so they could take credit card payments, which it seems like nothing now. Like you, there are billions of services online that will let you do this. But it was huge, a huge deal back then. This is before the World Wide Web. And accepting payments online seemed really risky. Come 1994, Ambrosia was ready to then expand its operations. I think he'd graduated. Uh, and Maelstrom had earned enough money and acclaim that he had the, the foundation and the money to hire actual physical office space and to operate as a shareware publisher like Apogee and Epic had been doing on the DOS site. So he put out a puzzle game he'd made called Chiral, and that is the correct pronunciation. They did an article about it saying, uh, who's Cheryl, back when they, when they launched, as well as a, a Gallagher clone called Swoop that had been developed by a guy he found online, David Waring, uh, along with David's wife, uh, Sharon, they're from Adelaide. And both of these games, Chiral and Swoop, were modest success, nothing anywhere close to Maelstrom but enough to keep things moving. And while this was going on, Ambrosia thought, we're already part of this community. Let's, let's talk to them more. Let's have an official channel through which we communicate. And uh, they called their newsletter the Ambrosia Times. It was distributed only online through AOL and BBSs and all that stuff. So, <laughs> I mean... I guess this was me sort of uh, deciding to do a blog before there were blogs, <laughs> you know? Um, I just thought I had seen some, uh, like, company newsletters that some companies were doing. I thought it, it might be a cool idea to do it. Um, we felt like we were part of the community, so we didn't have any problem, you know, being open about talking about stuff that was going on. And uh, honestly, we found it kind of fun you know, to share what we were doing there. And, you know, some months it became a chore to put together, but I, I still think it was kind of a cool idea from the point of view of connecting with the, uh, the people that we were, or, you know, that liked our games or our utilities or, or whatever it was. I had a lot of fun reading through all the issues of the Ambrosia Times when I was writing my book, and they clearly had a lot of fun making the thing. It was beautifully naive stuff. It was full of cringeworthy photos they'd taken on an Apple quick take camera. This is a really early digital camera. And it was full of silly stories of office life and the same kind of humor and that 90s edginess that they'd put in their games. And Apiron was going to be their next game. As you can see, Andrew Welch napping on the job part of the first generation that there is a permanent record of all the stupid shit that we did. <laughs> yeah.
which is kind of scary. And had we known how permanent that record was going to be, maybe we would not have done that. I don't know. <laughs> I think his laugh just makes that quote. Andrew was never afraid to voice his opinion either. He had a president's letter in every issue, kind of this editorial thing. This one is about what makes the game fun. Uh, his argument being that games should be easy to pick up and start banging away at, which fits pretty well with Ambrosia's early games. Ambrosia was fiercely independent and fiercely devoted to two ideas. One of them was that Microsoft and Windows sucks. And th this is actually quite a reasonable take on it by the guy writing the article. But the fans weren't quite so reasonable. <laughs> a lot of fans seem to think Microsoft sucks. And then the second one was that the internet was the future, which extended to, as I was saying, an electronic-only newsletter and digital-only games, digital-only software distribution. They were almost intolerably smug about it, like the Mac dude from I'm a Mac, I'm a PC ads. And Andrew Welch wrote more than a few editorials in the newsletter that were kind of laying this message down hard. And suddenly the stuff that people were writing in, uh, like that ramblings thing you saw, was crazy, hardcore, anti-Windows. And the fans, they ate it all up because being a Mac user in the 90s was hard. <laughs> really, really hard. Nearly all software was Windows only. If you needed to collaborate with somebody, you were pretty much going to be out of luck, whatever it was. And your computers cost more money. And uh, everyone assumed that you had Microsoft Word, and chances are you actually didn't. And as a result, you almost had to have this zealotry about you that the Mac was totally superior. Otherwise, why would you put up with all that crap? You, you, had to ex you had to accept that Windows was marching towards this 99% market share, this total and complete control over the home computer space. And you had to say that that's not right. Everybody should convert to Mac. And that's why there's this uh, idea of a cult of Macintosh. It's, it's literally how people were. They were, it was like a religion. And I think it also helped that uh, this idea kind of fit well with Ambrosia's games, which were often loud and brash and in your face. It's the techno music and the, the crazy pop culture references everywhere. And so while we're on games, we left off with this one, Chiral. And their first externally made game, Swoop. And after that, their rate of output it ramped up. Uh, they had a bunch more arcade mashups over the next several years. Barrack, uh, got a little video here, was similar to Kicks and uh, modeled quite closely on the Windows game, Jazz Ball. It was built into Windows. I'm sure anyone who had a PC would have played that at some point in the 90s. But it was way louder and more obnoxious. just goes on and on like the, the game just goes on and on until you run out of lives uh, with the lives being um, tied into that level thing you see on there then appear on was a lot like centipede and a very ugly game but a lot of fun to play bubble trouble took its cue from pengo slitherines was an elaborate snake slash nibbler like game uh, released 
kind of I think around the same time as Nokia uh, had their phones with Snake built into it. So it wasn't exactly capitalizing on that success. It was more taking inspiration from the the old games. And David Waring, the swoop guy, he had two uh, rising games, uh, Mars Rising and Deimos Rising, that were kind of like the Xevious uh, vertically scrolling shoot 'em up. But their big hit of the period, and it's reflected in the audience here, was a space game called Escape Velocity, which had a pretty fun origin story as well. It started as yet another Asteroids clone written in Matt Birch's free time. He created the game because he was way ahead uh, with his electrical engineering degree. He uh, got most of the credits he needed to graduate while he was still in high school. And so instead of uh, racing even further ahead, he slacked off and, <laughs> and he worked on a game in his spare time which pretty quickly expanded into a, a sort of a sandbox thing where you could go anywhere and be anything, whether it's a space pirate or a trader or a mercenary or a government agent or whatever it is. And he took inspiration from old model rocketry catalogs, which he had read a lot of. This was one of his hobbies. He, these days he builds rockets in his spare time and uh, I've got to where are they now later. That, and Star Wars and Star Trek. <laughs> And the Doc Smith adventure novels, uh, which are a fun read if if anyone uh, wants some cool sci-fi to read from from uh, seventy years ago or whatever it was. And a very important, very famous game from nineteen eighty four called Elite, which he'd never actually played. So he owned the copy, but he lost the game's uh, copy protection device. It was called a lens lock. It's this prism thing that you had to hold up to the screen like you see in the slide there and uh, get decode uh, the message that you had to type in in order to unlock the game to play. He was cycling home from the store and that fell out of his bag. And he went back and he couldn't find it and the store wouldn't let him take it back. So he went back home with a game that he couldn't play. So uh, then if he'd never played it, how could it possibly influence him? Let's find out. Let me take it back. So I, I'm, I was stuck with a copy of Elite, but the thing that I did have was the manual. And this was back in the days when manuals were, well, physical manuals, and, and they were very detailed, and they often had a story in it. And if you look up the manual to Elite, not only does it have a, a detailed backstory of their universe, but it also has a, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe 3,000 word short story in it about a fictional space pilot who's uh, traveling the space lanes and fighting pirates and all this. And I thought, I read that so many times, you know, at, this, at, at age 10 or something. It was, it, was, it was right in that zone where it was a very impressionable time. And I thought, wow, what a, what a great video game this must be if I ever got to play it. <laughs> so yeah, the poor thing for for like a year must have been just reading that thing over and over and imagining what, what it would be like. And the, the game Escape Velocity, it captured Elite's pioneering and playful spirit and it really resonated with Mac gamers. But I think that a lot of its success hinges on its modability. Uh, in addition to that core design, the fact that you could change it. Like Maelstrom, it encouraged you to create your own modifications and to share those and play other people's. You could overhaul the game completely. And as a result, uh, EV, as it's called for short, uh, EV plugin sharing and authoring became almost as popular as Escape Velocity itself. And most plugins, they'd only be really small. They'd change some little detail. They'd add a ship or... Uh, an upgrade or some little thing, maybe change a planet. And uh, then there were some that were more ambitious. Uh, in the modding world, they're called total conversion mods. They, they, they change everything. New story, new graphics, new sound, everything's different. Uh, you just use the original game as like a core engine for it. And the first uh, really big total conversion it got by Peter Cartwright, EV Override, it was so impressive that Ambrosia wanted to make it 
uh, an actual Ambrosia product. They wanted to publish it as the sequel to Escape Velocity. And Matt Birch said, okay, let's do it. And he made some upgrades to the engine to make it even cooler. And then again, later on, EV Override got a total conversion mod by a group of Tasmanian uni students. And it had this super elaborate new story. Like Matt thinks that uh, they should have written a book instead of making a game. <laughs> and, and that too got Ambrosia so interested that they said, let's publish that as another sequel. That's EV Override. Uh, sorry, EV Nova. EV Nova was the sequel to EV Override. And this is just one part of, I think there are maybe six or seven pages of story when you start the game. With these uh, custom 3D graphics that they'd made, they spent so much time developing this thing. Life is a cheap commodity in a dangerous universe. <laughs> I always like this ad. <laughs> Plugins and community involvement had become so integral to Ambrosia's identity. And their arcade mashups weren't really getting many player-made add-ons. They got some, but it wasn't... There's not much you can expand on, really, if it's just taking an old arcade game and remixing it. But they had another open-ended space game called Ares. Uh, which the community is still active today. There was a abstract first-person shooter I mentioned earlier, Avara. And there were a couple of RPGs. This one is Scythera, not Scythera, Scythera, by Glenn Andreas. And Pillars of Garandel. And my favorite Ambrosia game, Harry the Handsome Executive. All of these got dozens of player-made levels and modifications. And I really want to talk briefly about Harry in a moment, but before I, uh, because it's this fantastically creative game that I think exemplified the Ambrosia approach. And I once asked Andrew Welch about why their catalog was so eclectic. I mean, you've seen the range of games uh, already. And I remember he explained that they never thought about branding. This just wasn't something that came into their mind. If an independent developer sent in a demo that seemed cool, then they said, let's do it. And then they'd put some resources into helping that game get finished, give it a bit of polish, make it cool, make it ambrosia. And I think we could kind of define that ambrosia standard as a, a level of polish and shine that makes it almost indistinguishable from a commercial game. Uh, and also some some degree, some element, somewhere of a loud and brash. Uh, and yet it would only be 20 or 30 bucks. So it would be like half the price of a commercial game, but commercial quality. And sometimes hitting that polish was not so easy. Like with Scythera, which it was just overflowing with funny bugs, like infinite inventory. If you carried all your stuff in a series of corpses, uh, this is, um, I, I think they got the bulk of this fixed for the actual release, but uh, during development, uh, testing it, you could uh, carry a corpse and corpses were weightless, but corpses could carry stuff. So you put your stuff in a corpse and then... And then it has no weight, so you can exceed the weight limit. And then you have the corpse carry another corpse, so you can have even more stuff. And then they carry a corpse, and they carry a corpse, and so you just have infinite inventory. But then uh, where it stopped being an exploit and became a proper bug that needed to be fixed was the corpse at the end of the chain could carry the one at the front of the chain. <laughs> And then the game would crash. <laughs> so Ambrosia's PR and marketing guy at the time, Jason Wong, came up with a creative way to turn all these bugs and the delays that they caused in publishing because they would hold a game if it had too many bugs instead of just uh, forcing it to come out. 
he thought we can turn this into some positive buzz, some free publicity, and we can make sure that we go to Macworld Expo this year because he really wanted to go. And so he wrote in the Ambrosia Times that he would eat actual bugs at the event if any Ambrosia products that year shipped with a bug. Ambrosia has announced it would force marketing director Jason Wong to eat real insects. In doing so, the company became the first software publisher in history to punish its marketing staff with ingestive penalties. <laughs> I love that. And that was just at the bottom of a, a list of like patch notes that they put that. Which, of course, they then did all the games and, and software had bugs in them. I think it was probably actually a motivation for them to leave bugs. <laughs> and it was all in good fun, but let's hear from Jason. We did it, I'm pretty sure it was the, the 3DFX booth. Um, it was a big stage. There were uh, probably hundreds of people watching. And there was... I think 400 mealworms, four death's head cockroaches, four Madagascar hissing cockroaches, one tarantula, and one scorpion. The mealworms were kind of in a, a salad. They had dressing on them. But the, the cockroaches, I think, were on pizza. Um, they, weren't, they weren't very good at all. The tarantula, okay, so the story with tarantulas is if you're cooking them, you're supposed to cook them over an open flame so that you can singe the hairs off of them. This tarantula was cooked in an oven, so it's, it, was, it still had hair on it, and I bit into the, the back of it, and I don't remember so much about what it tasted like because it was seasoned or something, but the hair stuck in my gums for the rest of the day. And, you know, it's, it's, you're at a show, you're talking to people and you're feeling, you know, these, these uh, hairs scratching the inside of your cheek. Every time you talk, it, it gets kind of uh, distressing. <laughs> <laughs> that poor thing. I think he's, he's still happy with the decision he made to do that. <laughs> <laughs> there was also a... a a little silly game made as a result of this thing because he, he was drinking red wine to try and wash it all down and uh, some kids apparently stole his wine and then they made a game called Escape from Jason Wong. <laughs> so now a quick sidebar about Harry <laughs> because I don't think that it's as well known as it should be. Harry the Handsome Executive was made by a couple of high schoolers Ben Spees and Josh, Josh Rothman. Ben did the design and programming, while Josh, who went on to write for The New Yorker, I think he's still there, uh, he did most of the writing. Ben had dreamed of having a game published by Ambrosia. They were his heroes. He was one of those fans I talked about earlier who just idolized them. And in his last year of high school, he asked his friend Josh to help him pull it off. And Josh suggested, let's make a game that was either a handsome executive called Harry, who's stuck in a swivel chair for the entire game, or a forklift driver called Phil, who's stuck in a forklift for the entire game. Ben thought both were super fun sounding games, but he went for the former. Let's go with Harry. And then having never worked in an office because they're like 17, 18 years old, they're in high school, they proceeded to base their entire world on a bunch of Dilbert comics. <laughs> Here's Ben speaking about that. We were able to fool people into thinking we knew all about uh, the tribulations of the modern workplace and that we were just teenagers. And of course, you know, Dilbert was based on reality. And, you know, when I did get into offices, it was uh, very much what I was expecting. So basically you had an office full of cubicles where nobody ever gets much work done because they're too busy sending memos and throwing darts at the wall and uh, eating donuts and so on. And you, as a middle manager named Harry, were tasked with single-handedly staving off a robot proletariat uprising. 
which is to say that you had to use your staple gun and swivel chair to fight back against sentient office equipment. Which has, of course, had enough of being mistreated by everybody in the office. And now, speaking of office life, Ambrosia was a bit of an odd place to work, as I suppose all games companies are. At the company's peak, Ambrosia, uh, Andrew Welch would show up at a nightclub and he'd buy everybody there a drink on the company card. And then he'd drive around in his big black Hummer SUV, you know, those gigantic four-wheel drives that uh, were ex-military. And apparently it smelled like a boat, <laughs> I've been told. And office life was a mix of practical jokes. There were monthly perks, like a monthly massage. Uh, professional masseuse would come in and they'd get an hour each in Andrew's office. And there was, of course, windows bashing and a lot of trying not to be driven insane by a parrot called Hector D. Bird, <laughs> who, despite the name, I'm told, was actually female. They didn't realise this at the beginning. A glorified pigeon, apparently. Probably one of the worst decisions of my life because, I mean, those parrots are messy and they're loud. Hector had learned to mimic the sound their fax machine makes when it's out of caper. <laughs> because uh, Hector would hear this all night long. And also the sound of the door opening and closing and a whole lot of other office sounds. And once she also bit a lady who was nice to her, which is pretty mean. Plus Hector loved to swear when visitors came into the office because Hector had learned all of the curse words <laughs> and saved them specifically for guests. <laughs> and uh, so it's no surprise that Hector took a starring role in the Ambrosia Times newsletter as a villain. And I think the, the conversation with Hector is a lot of fun. The, the other thing is a, a, a two-part story, a murder mystery in two parts. It wasn't anything that we planned. We just kind of thought it was funny, uh, but just decided to take that adversarial relationship and, uh, you know, kind of foster it a little bit. Um, but it definitely was from a real basis. I mean, that, that bird aged me. <laughs> I also heard that on at least one occasion, Heather's old, Hector's old feathers got jammed up in the expensive silicon graphics workstation that they had in the server room that was hosting their website. These are computers that were like $10,000 or $15,000. Most of their game development was done externally, but they had a few coders in-house for the productivity utilities that they made, and they had customer support and marketing, and of course Andrew was there, and there were a couple of other people. Um, so total staff numbers, probably like high single, low double digits most of their life. And that posed a bit of a problem, because by the early 2000s, most commercial games were made by development teams that were two, three, many more times larger than that. And budgets would be in the high six figures or low seven figures sometimes for the, the really fancy games. And while Ambrosia wasn't a commercial publisher, they had built their reputation on being commercial caliber. So people expected that their games would look and play like something the commercial studio was putting out. And so Andrew Welch was really uneasy about the idea of scaling things up, especially when they could survive just fine off those utility products on their own. So here's how he explained why they uh, were reluctant. Uh, what it took to actually produce a game was getting more and more like, you know, movie budget-ish, <laughs> you know, in terms of the, the production that needed to be done. And yeah, to some extent, I regret not pursuing that further. Um, but we... At the time, I was kind of looking at it from the point of view of, well, you know, we're, we're a small shop and to do what is expected these days in terms of a high production value 3D game takes a ton of money. 
And there is also a ton of risk involved where, you know, if you're, if you're a big gaming company like EA or whatever, if one or two titles don't work out, then that's fine. It's not a big deal. You know, it's, there's really no huge problem uh, because you will have a game somewhere that will do really well. Um, but for us, I was somewhat concerned about that. We would spend just a ton of money on trying to produce, you know, a, a really awesome 3d, you know, whatever. And if for whatever reason it didn't go over well, we were done, you know? So a lot of it just had to do with what it would take uh, to produce a game that would actually sell. I mean, this is around the time where big name bands were starting to be signed on to do the soundtracks for various games and where uh, the, the 3D uh, engines were really kind of defining the games that were coming out. And I guess I kind of looked at that and uh, in, in some sense kind of chickened out from the point of view that I was really concerned that we could just, you know, spend a ton of money just trying to produce something and have it not end up working out. And then, then we're just done, you know, bit of an existential crisis, but they didn't get out of games right away after EV Nova, which was, I think 2003, uh, they had over a dozen games. Here's five of them on the screen. Uh, some were, uh, original games by external teams, um, like the one in the middle, uh, it's a really nifty shoot 'em up called Sketch Fighter 4000 Alpha. It's all hand drawn. It's super cool. Um, and the first game by the guys who made Unity Engine, Google, uh, the game wasn't a success. And so that's why they then thought, oh, our engine's pretty good though. And they commercialized the engine. It's a good decision. And uh, there were some Mac ports of PC indie games. Like, um, Prison Architect developer Introversion's early games and Derek Yu's pre-Spunky project Aquaria, which is uh, down the bottom right. And there was a Magic the Gathering-esque card game based on EV Nova, which looks like this. I had no idea about this thing until I was researching the book. Uh, these photos come directly from David Williams, who uh, was, I guess, lead designer on the game. But they never again scaled the heights of Maelstrom, Apeiron, and the EV series. And after the Macs moved to Intel processors in 2006, they didn't really do anything other than update some titles to work natively on the newer Macs. But their productivity utilities were then taking center stage for a few years as a new generation of Mac gamers came along who'd never known life uh, with Ambrosia or with Mac-only game development. And so gradually Ambrosia faded into collective memory. When I interviewed Andrew Welch for my book a few years ago, he insisted Ambrosia is still alive. A bit strange, huh? There's no audio for this, so if you're, if you're interested, read it. Uh, he himself continued to use the company's utility software on a daily basis. And yet they'd had no new software in years. They'd had no full-time staff since 2013 when all but a couple of people were laid off. And after years of reduced engagement with the business, Andrew, he didn't seem to, to really be into Ambrosia anymore. And at this point here in 2016, the only thing that was still actively getting updated was Snaps Pro, their screen recording tool. So it's a bit strange that he said they were still alive. But then those stopped too as did the registration key system that gave people their code uh, to type into the game when they bought something from Ambrosia. So there was a point where you could actually buy stuff from Ambrosia and not be able to play it, which was horrible. And, at, and also uh, the way their codes work, they expire. So if you needed to get a new code to refresh your purchase, you couldn't do that either. Then they still had a few people hanging out on the forums. It's amazing how many people were still active on the Escape Velocity forums. You see a, a million replies. And then finally, late last year, Ambrosia's last remaining employee, the part-time money man, Bernard Cocken, who had dutifully sent out quarterly royalty statements and 
there were still small numbers of these games getting sold to the creators of the games. He emailed everybody to say he's done. Ambrosia's, Ambrosia is officially shutting down. And so they went out not with a bang, nor even so much as a whimper, but rather a quiet fade out into the sunset, which I think is a, an inter interesting contrast for a company that in its heyday was loud and bashful and proud. It would declare to anybody who will listen that Shareway is the wave of the future, that digital distribution is destined to dominate, and that you might as well go all in on it now because the signs are already there in retail. Things are, things are fading away. That that expensive, slow monster that retail was would sooner or later collapse under its own inadequacies. In retrospect, Ambrosia's smug, uncompromising dedication to both the Mac and to digital distribution may have been as much a fault as a virtue because it helped them stand out to be the big fish in the tiny pond but it limited their audience. It left them off the radar of most media folks, as almost all of them just ignored shareware, like it doesn't exist. And despite their popularity, Apple ignored them too. And most importantly, this was in a period right before the first iMac hit in 1998, and then for a little while afterwards, where not only was retail distribution still by far dominant, for buying software and games, but also where speculation was rife that Apple would go out of business. So it was almost an act of insanity to be digital only, Mac only. And Andrew, when I talked to him, he saw it too. Things where I all along felt very strongly about the idea of selling a digital product online. You know, I really thought that that was the way that things should be done. And, you know, as it turns out, I was right, okay, but I was wrong for the time because at the time, not enough people were online and there were still software stores that you could walk into and there were boxes on the shelves uh, where you could buy this stuff. And, you know, there still are today, but um, I, I just, I never really wanted to make that leap to go into the, uh, the commercial publishing part of it. Part, in part because I had some really horrible experiences with uh, publishers back when I was younger. Um, and in part also uh, because I just really didn't think, I really thought that the type of thing that we were doing really should be sold online. Um, and in retrospect, it was probably uh, a mistake. It was probably one of those things where, well, you know, if the, the company really, really wanted to do well, we probably should have done that. Um, but just philosophically, I didn't want to, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think I, I, I got a little bit too stubborn on, on that count. We probably should have done something with it. Probably. So before we finish, uh, I thought uh, some of you might appreciate a quick, where are they now? Um, so here are some of the, the key members of Ambrosia and what they did next. Uh, Matt Birch, notable there, he actually designs aircraft navigation equipment nowadays. Uh, Jason Wong is a journalist. Ben Spees is still in development. Uh, the PR and marketing guy from like 99 to uh, when they closed still does graphic design and PR. Uh, the, one of the key technical support guys still does technical consulting and development. But very few people uh, who worked at Ambrosia are in games now. And uh, some of the games are still alive. There's a possible EV override remake. Uh, Peter Cartwright is, is actively looking into that. There may one day be sequels or modern remakes of Harry the Handsome Executive and Faraisal's Wand, but I haven't seen anything happen in three years since I talked to Ben about that stuff. So I don't know if it's gonna happen. I do remember him telling me that getting the controls right on iPad was really tricky. And most of Ambrosia's other games, they have a really uncertain future. Cause as I said, the registration system is down and that means that you can't really play them properly. 
and, and the escape velocity games, if you play beyond your 30 day trial, they actually send a character called Hector after you. <laughs> so it becomes a very difficult game suddenly. <laughs> and here are some videos. Um, the EV live stream, I did that. Uh, the next three videos are by some other people, some fans. Uh, quite interesting stuff, and a few uh, Mac-related videos I've I've made. Or oh, one is a keynote that I gave. Um, give you a moment. Everyone wants to take photos of that. Yeah, all good. And this is uh, where you can find me on the internet. I've also got these slides available for download. And so that is the end of my talk. Now we can go into questions and stories, comments, whatever. A microphone. Anybody? Okay. Oh, there's a mic coming. Um, so I guess, um, first of all, thank you. I'm sure I'm not speaking for just myself when I say this. I've woken a whole bunch of childhood memories I don't even realize I remembered. <laughs> um, is your book for sale here at PAX today? No, unfortunately not. I, I had copies last year. But, Fair enough. But not this year. If you go to the website, you'll get uh, all the where to buy links. Good stuff. Um, anyone else? Yeah, I played a bunch of EV Nova. It was awesome. But I was a poor teenager. I had no money. So I pirated. Yeah. And <laughs> I had and a friend of mine, he had to actually write the crack because there are no cracks available for it, um, which is this guy. Um, so, so we got you to thank for the fact that it can still be played without Hector. I also played uh, EV and EV override on PC on an emulator. I've never actually played on a Mac, so this is really weird for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, then we went on to start an indie studio, and the first game that we made and sold on Xbox was inspired by EV Nova. What's the game? Um, it was called Project Alpha. Really, really daggy name. I, I, I've heard of it, but I'm not familiar with it. Yeah. It was a little arcade game on Xbox Live Indie Games. So it was more of an arcade shooter with no story, just the landing on planets, selling stuff, upgrading a ship. Hmm. Starting basically like EV Nova, slightly cut down, but with better graphics. <laughs> gotcha. So this panel is absolutely fantastic. Thanks. Anyone else got a question or a story they want to tell? We've still got a few minutes. Um... Okay. Um, I found Ambrosia Software through a strange set of circumstances where I played a game one day um, and I really liked it. And it was a space game and you fly around in a spaceship and you're shooting things. And I tried to find it and I couldn't quite remember the name. I was searching for it on the internet and I went... Something, something, velocity. And I went, yes. And I found Escape Velocity and I was like, oh, this is great. This is nothing like the game I was looking for. It was actually <laughs> Terminal Velocity. Um, uh, and then we, we played that. Me and my friend, we played that a lot. Um, EV Nova. Oh, Mars Rising was a good one. Um, we liked that one too. You loved EV Nova better than me. Um, I found Escape, the original Escape Velocity, I could handle that level of story. Override and EV Nova were a bit too... Big. Mm. Um, yeah, man. yeah, I get that too. I don't know. I thought, I thought it was. Anyone else randomly find games like that? Yeah, the, the original one's my favorite too. I like the simplicity of it. Yes, I did not uh, cover it in the book except maybe a quick mention, but uh, I have come across it. Yeah. It's an obscure shareware RPG for Mac. So I got to work on uh, a tiny, tiny part of EV Nova. Mm -hmm. I was uh, 17, 16, working out of my bedroom at home in Tassie. Uh, I know I worked on, uh, I was, it basically more or less was what got me into doing animation. I ended up using a, another shareware program to build that called Mechanisto. It's probably one of the, the best 3D uh, item association pro programs out there. I don't know if it still exists. It's probably long gone now. Uh, but I remember that uh, if you ever get the chance to play Nova, there's a ship that has a rotating habitat module. Worked on that for a very long time, <laughs> a very long time. 
the uh, rotating habitat only rotates to the right <laughs> unless you turn to the left and then it rotates to the left. <laughs> uh, so if you look at it really carefully, you can see it doesn't it basically just does this if you're uh, that because we could never make it go because of the way they organize their the uh, the animation files to mm. spin one way entirely or, or the other way. I'd hate to be people on that ship. That's all I kept thinking myself <laughs> when I was designing it. You'd be you'd be thrown about so much. Um, uh, but I got started in the uh, in the add-ons. I did a Star Trek add-on for EV itself. Um, and then some guys from Override were like, this is cool. Do you want to have a crack at doing another ship? And I did. Mm, cool. Uh, so that's how I got involved with all that. Very, very good games. My mum was fantastically into uh, Apelion or Apelion, the, the Caterpillar <laughs> game. And I played a lot of the, uh, I've forgotten that one, the one where you've got to draw the lines, a lot of that game. Way too Parish. much that game. Yeah. Anyway, they're all good games. Hmm. All right. So if there's no other questions, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, everyone.